The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, March 8th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The other day, Trump, President Donald, tweeted that under Obama, 122 prisoners left Gitmo and rejoined the battlefield. Wrong, it was nine under Obama, the rest under Bush. I wasn't even going to mention this. You know, that a president of the United States got a fact so utterly and thoroughly backward? Though PolitiFact dubs this Trump tweet as only mostly false. Come on, PolitiFact, if this guy's pants aren't on fire, then he's wearing asbestos jodspurs. He's wearing asbestos jodspurs. That was like a Johnny Carson joke. Trump got that fact on Fox and Friends. But even Fox and Friends reported it correctly. That's how they say our friends. Trump just misinterpreted them. So normally he just parrots Fox, but often he's like actually a defective parrot. Who's a pretty bird? Who's a pretty bird? Not Carly Fiorina. And that has been Trump as a parrot. Now I'm Gilbert Gottfried. I think this is the easiest to dispute. The worst no wiggle room misstatement that Trump has made so far. It's not the most consequential. So far, there's no congressional investigation based on this lie. But I think it's the one that everyone could point to and say, wow, you just got that wrong. Even Breitbart covered the tweet. The headline was Trump terrible decision by Obama to free vicious Guantanamo Bay jihadis. So they tried to make it a story about that But they did note that he got the numbers wrong and said the White House wouldn't clarify the mistake. And that's weird because the White House is Steve Bannon, right? And he has pretty strong ties to Breitbart, spiritual leader. But of course, you know what they say about Trump. It's all five-dimensional chess with this guy. He's playing the long game. 5D chess. And the Obama administration left the queen exposed to the rook diagonally. Uh, Mr. President, rooks don't move diagonally. Bishops move diagonally. Doesn't matter. Low energy king, little pawn, crooked bishop. On the show today, it's zero hour, people. We have all got to reset our phones, our watches, our fridges. We've got to turn the microphone off. We'll lose certain GPS functionality, but possibly gain our freedom. This is what a WikiLeaks report shows, the CIA spying on us through our fridges. But first, there is no one better to talk healthcare than Sarah Cliff of Vox. Unfortunately, she couldn't make it, so we booked Ways and Means Chairman Kevin Brady instead. No, I'm kidding. It is Sarah Cliff from Vox. You've got 63 days to listen to this, or the podcast triples in price. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where 
McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The bigger they are, the harder they fall, and there is no law bigger than the American Health Care Act to politics in 2017, and it falls to Vox's Sarah Cliff, who is actually the grandniece of Jimmy Cliff, who sang that song. Disclosure, Sarah is in no way related to Jimmy Cliff. In fact, no. they spell Cliff with totally different letters all. in front, but she knows almost everything about healthcare. Hello, Sarah. Hi, that was a surprise. This is exciting. <laughs> Who knows what's going to happen next? Yeah, yeah. We should say uh, you write about it for Vox and you talk about it for the weeds. And if you want to uh, dive into Sarah talking to Matt Iglesias and Ezra Klein about this, I'd recommend the Weeds podcast. But let's just talk for a second. Let's. There's so many ways to slice this because there are so many aspects to the bill. But let's do this. Let's take yeah. a few average people. Let's go young and old and rich and okay. poor, and just tell me, you know, how their rates are going to change and how their policies are going to change under this health care plan. Okay. So let's say, so for most people, you actually won't see much change. If you are one of those average people who gets insurance at work, um, don't stop listening because this will be interesting, but you should not expect much change in your coverage. The people we're really talking about are people who get their insurance through the individual market, people who get their insurance through Medicaid. So let's start with those people. Let's say you are a young, healthy, 21-year-old. Let's say like you're a kind of rich tech startup person in New York. This plan is good for you. This plan provides more generous subsidies to high-income people. It provides more generous subsidies to young people. And it kind of lowers the insurance rates for the youngest American. So if you are, you know, that person in New York, you don't get insurance at work because you're at the small tech startup, this could be a good plan for you. If you are, let's say, someone who is low income but the same age, all of a sudden this becomes not a very good plan for you because while that rich tech startup guy is getting more subsidies to buy insurance, you are getting less subsidies to buy insurance. Um, and then let's talk about kind of the average. The person who this is worst for is someone who is in their 60s buying their own health insurance and um, low income. Let's say they earn like fifteen or $20,000 a year. And they live somewhere where healthcare is very expensive. Let's say they live in Alaska. Let's say you are a retired um, salmon finisherman mm -hmm. in Alaska. Mm -hmm. You're 63. Um, this is a very, very bad plan for you because you're getting less subsidies to buy insurance and your premiums are increasing significantly. What's the biggest change from Obamacare? Oh my gosh, there's so many changes. Um, it's hard Cut to throat. think of this just is what, one. I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert, but to okay. me, from the coverage, it seems to yes. me that the biggest changes, yes, there are those monetary changes, but mm -hmm. the biggest changes, and let's lay the predicate in order to have healthcare for everyone, you need everyone or as many people mm -hmm. as possible buying into the pool, and they change the mechanism 
that that is done by. And it used to be uh, you would find someone or have a penalty if you don't buy health insurance. This really distressed a lot of uh, conservative thinkers. And now the penalty is if you let it lapse for two months, you uh, get hit with essentially a fine or or an increased premium. That that seems pretty big. Yes, 63 days, exactly. If you go without coverage for 63 days and you want to go to the individual market to buy a plan, you will have to pay a 30% surcharge for an entire year. And there is a lot of debate about how this provision will work. It's really hard to know right now because we haven't gotten a score from the Congressional Budget Office, which is kind of our nonpartisan scorekeeping agency here in D.C., But this is a big change. Um, It used to be you paid an annual fine to the government every year for not having health insurance. Now you would pay a fine to insurance companies. This kind of big fine, a 30 percent fine on a premium would be pretty significant. You'd pay that for a year and then you'd go back to the standard rate. And there's an active debate about is that going to encourage healthy people to buy insurance? That's the reason you have the individual mandate. That's the reason you have the premium surcharge. You're trying to get people who don't want to buy insurance to decide, I don't want to pay these fees, so I'm just going to get the policy. And having them in the pool kind of lowers premiums for everyone else. And we don't know how well this policy will work. It hasn't been tested. There's some concerns even from conservatives that um, healthy people will say, well, I don't want to pay that premium surcharge. I'm just going to wait to buy coverage till I'm sick, and then I'll pay that premium surcharge. But but we don't know. It's um it's pretty untested, and it's new. And I was reading Philip Klein in the Washington Examiner, conservative thinker, and he pointed to this and said, what this proves is that Obamacare and liberalism as an mm-hmm. idea won, and all we're really debating about is mechanisms. Yes, I agree with Phil on this point. I think one of the things we have seen, one of the things that surprised me a little bit, is that Obamacare has become incredibly entrenched. And I think it is fair, as some Freedom Caucus members are saying, to really call this Obamacare light. At the end of the day, you're continuing a lot of the things in Obamacare. You're ratcheting them down a lot. Like, make no mistake, for people who have Obamacare, a lot of them will be worse off under this plan. But the structure of it, the idea of subsidies in the individual market, the end of pre-existing conditions, the kind of fine for not carrying health insurance, um, the Medicaid expansion, for example, continues for three years. That's really big. Um, This is a scaled down version of Obamacare. And I think it really shows that finally there's this theory Democrats had for ages that I thought was very wrong, but is finally proving right. They thought that once people got the benefits, once they were rolled out, that they would like it and they would rally around it. And that theory has been wrong for years. But it turns out once they got the benefits and there was a massive threat of those being taken away, (laughs) you've seen the popularity of the law go up. And it's been really hard for Republicans to come up with with an alternative. And they don't really feel comfortable kicking millions of people off insurance. And that puts them in a really tough spot. Yeah. Maybe it was right. They just didn't realize they liked it until someone threatened to take it away. It's sort of like, I can insult my brother, but you can't. Yes, exactly. Maybe that's it. (laughs) There seems to be another big, but you tell me how big it is part of this plan. And it's it's about Medicaid. And the Medicaid Mm -hmm. expansion was successful, I think. I mean, at least it got a lot of people coverage. And it's not a free lunch. It's going to have a cost. So they allowed this to go on until the year 2020, and then it will expire or at least like get kicked to the states. So the federal government won't be uh, funding it. The states will. How big was this big? This is my question. Is this this seems really big? Um, it's big in two ways. So so you're exactly right. The Medicaid expansion would continue as is until January 1st, 2020. At that point, enrollment would freeze. Um, states could keep covering the people already on Medicaid expansion. The federal government would pay for those people, but they couldn't sign up new people. And if anyone fell off the program, like let's say they started earning too much money to qualify or they didn't turn in their paperwork, 
they could not re-enroll. Once you're off, you're off for good. So you'd expect enrollment to kind of dwindle down over time. And I think the research I've seen suggests it could happen quite quickly. Um, I think this is big in two ways. One, it ends the Medicaid expansion. And this is a massive source of coverage under the Affordable Care Act. And I think, you know, if this law does pass, I think in a weird way, it might actually encourage a few states that haven't expanded Medicaid to kind of get on board before 2020, right? Like this is your last chance to get in the door. In a weird way, it could actually increase the size of the Medicaid expansion. Um, But that 2020 cliff is going to be a big deal if they pass this. Um, And I think you might see some revisions in 2020, an election year. Maybe they don't want to kick millions of people off insurance. And so it's big in that way that it's ending the Medicaid expansion a few years. It's also big and it's keeping the Medicaid expansion for a few years. Again, this kind of shows me how entrenched Obamacare has become, how Medicaid, which is often a program that has difficulty developing political clout because its enrollees are typically low-income Americans who vote at lower rates, it's developed a massive constituency. Governors don't want to roll it back. Hospitals want to keep it. It is really hard to roll back the Medicaid expansion. So one of the things you've seen, if you've watched the evolution of the Republican plan, it went from killing the Medicaid expansion on day one to keeping it for three years, which is um, a pretty big evolution to the left in this bill. Yeah, that's my question. Is this 2020 thing set in stone or will it be one of those things like sunset provisions for reimbursement where in 2019 they'll say, yeah, maybe 24. And then in 2023, (laughs) they'll say, yeah, maybe 2028. Yeah, there's kind of for a while, there's this longstanding example of this um, called the sustainable growth rate. Um, It was the kind of formula for how Medicare decided to reimburse doctors. And every year it would fall short. And every year Congress would appropriate additional money to kind of keep um, the payment rates for Medicare doctors whole. And it was this kind of thing that would happen at the end of every year. It's like how the health policy year ended was with this one legislative thing. And I think you could... It's very implausible to me that the Republicans in an election year 2020 would decide, like, this is a good time to kick millions of people off Hmm. Medicaid. I would kind of expect they – the hard part is revenue, right? How do you pay for a few more years of Medicaid expansion? I would expect that they just would pass it as is 2020 or push it back because they want, like, the hospital association on board. And then once you get to that cliff, like, extend it another year and kind of shore up the funds, um, you know, scrounge around for the money then. Does does Paul Ryan and Tom Price, do they love this bill? That's a great question. Um, I am becoming more and more convinced they care less about passing this bill than I had thought. Because, you know, the process around it doesn't really seem designed to get this bill passed. They're moving incredibly quickly. They have so much dissent from both sides of their party, from the moderates, from the conservative wing. Um, this bill is really, really different from Paul Ryan's Better Way Plan, which is kind of his big health policy vision. Um, The reason it's different is because they have to work through this weird Senate process called reconciliation. Um, This is a process that has the advantage of letting them move with just 50 votes. They they can't be filibustered in reconciliation. They don't need that 60-vote threshold, but has the disadvantage of um, only letting them do things that directly affect the budget. And that means you end up with this weird warped version of what Paul Ryan actually wanted to do. This is not the bill Paul Ryan wishes he was passing. He wishes he was doing this kind of wholesale healthcare reform, but it turns out he's constrained to things that um, only relate the budget. And that makes it really hard to do one of the things Paul Ryan really wants to do, which is re-regulate the health insurance industry, which just isn't a federal budget issue. But if it fails, isn't this a huge disaster for the Republicans? I mean, I guess they could, well, there are some scenarios where they could try to blame Democrats, but how would that not redound to their shame and embarrassment? 
Yeah, so I think like if you're Paul Ryan, you're Tom Price or Mitch McConnell, like you have some pretty terrible choices in front of you right now. You can pass a bill that'll kick millions of people off health insurance or you could like just get it to fail as quickly as possible. Say like, you know, well, it is it's those Democrats, you know, they wouldn't join us. Um, you know, they were they would have filibustered the bill. You could say it's Senate procedure. You could say it's like those moderate, you know, Republicans. <laughs> you could. So the choices are kick millions of people off health insurance. Don't deliver on a campaign promise. And not your campaign promise. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and just, you know, say like so. And I don't know. Neither of those are like good choices. But if I'm Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, like maybe not delivering on a campaign promise and just moving quickly to tax reform is a better option than passing a bill that no one in the caucus really seems to like. Like it is amazing what a negative reaction this bill has gotten. I have received, I get a lot of press releases on healthcare. I've only heard from two outside groups that like this bill. One is the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. The other is the National Retail Federation. And I've heard from a whole slew of healthcare interests who do not like this bill. But wait so, a minute. The healthcare CEOs have to like it. Their salaries got uncapped in this bill. They weren't doing bad <laughs> without it, but now they, the sky's the limit, right? Well, I'll say the insurers have not weighed in yet, and their silence okay. is a little bit interesting. That they, But, you know, you've had the American Medical Association Wednesday morning came out against the bill. The hospitals are against the bill. Um, it, it's And this is very different from Obamacare. One of the things Obama did, and he was criticized a little bit for it, is before they even got started on health care, he kind of convened all the um, lobby groups in D.C. and, like, said, what would it take to get you on board? Like, how can yeah. I make sure you don't send out those negative press releases about my bill? Um, Republicans didn't do that. And now they're getting a lot of negative press releases about their bill. Well, let's game this out. If this fails, though, Democrats will say, ha ha ha, egg on your face. But they know that Obamacare needs tweaks or maybe more than tweaks, big fixes. Mm -hmm. If nothing happens, doesn't it set Obamacare ACA on a course of looking worse and worse as it goes on? Yeah, so I think this is a hard, this is, I think this is a really good point that you can't just kind of like wipe off your hands and walk away from this situation and move on to something else. I think the the Medicaid expansion could continue pretty steady. And that is the, what's providing the most coverage of ACA right now. So that doesn't really need any intervention. It's, it's working quite well. It's these marketplaces that even if you had a Democratic president right now, we're, we're really starting to struggle. Um, you know, a lot of insurers left the marketplaces last year because they didn't find them profitable. Um, Republicans have introduced a ton of uncertainty, you know, and if you're an insurer who's thinking, you know, do I want to sell in these marketplaces? This experience likely has not been like a real encouraging sign that you should like really stake your business out there. And I think that is kind of an interesting dynamic we'll see start to play out in the spring if insurers pull out of the marketplaces, even if this health reform effort has failed, then um, it seems like the Trump administration would need to do something. And then they're stuck with another like really terrible choice of making this law they hate work or like putting in another effort to try and pass a bill to replace it. Um, So there's a lot of terrible choices to make if you're a Republican legislator right now. With her clear-eyed vision on this issue, we call her Sarah the 2020 Cliff. Sarah Cliff, senior policy correspondent for Vox and a co-host of The Weeds. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, thanks for having me.
And now the spiel. WikiLeaks has revealed that the CIA is listening to us through our devices. It's coming from inside the house. No, wait, it is the house. The leak has been dubbed Year Zero by WikiLeaks, which promises to be the first in a series of CIA-related leaks that the site is calling Vault 7. And the programs, oh, the names, you got Umbridge, you got Burning Angel, Bull Run, they sound so authentic. The rule of thumb, if the writer's room of Mr. Robot says, wow, that's a good code name, then it is something to worry about in real life. Our top spy agencies have, we don't know if we've used these techniques, these programs, they've at least brainstormed and talked about them. And in some cases, it does seem clear that they have implemented them through the Internet of Things That, by the way, is a terrible code name. I hate the phrase, the Internet of Things. But you know what it means. It means smartphones and smart TVs and the Amazon Echo and the Google Home. The CIA can now turn up the heat on our enemies by literally turning up the heat via a hacked Nest thermostat. Just out of curiosity, I wondered, what wasn't there a smart thing of? A politician. Am I right, people? Those clowns down in Washington. Wipes tear away from the eye. But seriously, folks. When it comes to smart appliances, if it doesn't exist now, it's trying to exist. That's how smart it is. On Kickstarter, I came across this. Meet Toasteroid, a new kind of toaster that brings family and friends closer together. When was the last time you were this excited for breakfast? If I'm a spook within the deep state, I'm pretty excited about Toasteroid. That is true. Inside Toasteroid's innovative and minimal design, the smart toasting system is powered by microfilament heating technology, but it can do so much more. Okay, I'll describe how Toasteroid works. You draw a design on your smartphone, it sends it to the toaster, and it emblazons that design on your toast. Whatever it is, Hello Kitty, a sports team logo, the schematics to power plants, dams, and other pieces of critical infrastructure... But why can't the communication be a two-way street? It doesn't seem so hard to hack Toasteroid so that your toast is listening to you. All right, think that idea is stupid? Listen to this idea. We can toast the latest weather forecast and other useful information anywhere in the world. (laughs) By the end of this gleeful promotional video, they are practically admitting the whole thing is a CIA front operation. What is more exhilarating than a morning message from your loved ones? How about a toastage? secret messages that are only readable on toast so the secret stays with you forever in fact you can take the secret to your grave on the new toasteroid add-on cyanide capsuloid okay so that smart technology is stupid but this is idiotic smart swizzle sticks The Stick is a Cortex MO Plus processor, Bluetooth, LED display with accelerometer. Here, inventor Raphael Terrier, perhaps, touts how his disruption of the cocktail preparation space works. Can't we find a way to make cocktail preparation easier for everyone? Well, that's our goal with Stick. It's an affordable connected device that can turn anyone into a mixologist. Okay. Smart toaster, smart swizzle stick. Can they make anything that's dumb smart? Dumb as a doornail. I came across the smart nail. According to the Journal of Power Sources, it says nail penetration is one of the common safety tests used to simulate some aspects of an internal short circuit in some battery cells. The test is usually performed with an ordinary steel nail. 
but the smart nail was developed to collect temperature at the point of nail penetration in conjunction with a thermocouple on the cell surface and tabs on the end to measure voltage. Yeah, they got a smart nail. But there is one final frontier in dumb things that you thought couldn't be smart. But now we've crossed that frontier. Ever know a guy who is dumb as a bag of rocks? I give you the Kickstarter campaign for Smart Bag of Rocks. How often have you been holding a bag of rocks only to wonder, hey, why am I doing all the thinking here? Introducing Smart Bag of Rocks. Smart Bag of Rocks includes a thermostat, internal microphone, USB port, Wi-Fi interface, dongle, AV input and output, and sensor touch technology. They'll tell you whether your project needs one rock, a bunch of rocks, a big rock, a small rock, or a jagged rock. Just enter your four-digit pin and orient smart bag of rocks within Bluetooth range, and smart bag of rocks will give you advice. Knock a squirrel off a lamppost. Recommend one medium rock. A compool. Recommend one smooth flat rock. A circus tent blowing away. Recommend one largest rock or 20 smaller rocks. Smart Bag of Rocks can help all your calculations, including picking which type of rock to throw at a uniform member of the law enforcement community during your anti-establishment political protest, or the paperweight used for sensitive government documents that you were considering leaking. Let he who is without Smart Bag of Rocks cast the first stone. Smart Bag of Rocks should not be used to smash Smart Toaster, Smart Doorstop, or Smart Dumbwaiter. And that's it for today's show. Chris Berube produced the gist. He is of no relation to reggae star Toots Berube, though he did sing with the Mai Tals. Mary Wilson produced the gist. You may know her by the name she toured with when she opened for Burning Spear, Lukewarm Tongs. Steve Lichtai has been executive producer for the Slate podcasts for a 63-day period, or two months, even though the only 62-day period that lasts for less than three months is from December to January or July to August. Did you know that? Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, wants more calendar fun facts in each episode. The gist. We know how you feel. No Medicaid expansion, no cry. Also, get the government out of our government house in Trenchtown. Oomperu, depperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening.